0: Turn in your Bible for the last time, not hopefully the last time in your life, but for the last time uh, in the near future for our congregation, to James chapter 5. And as you turn there, I, uh, I want to kind of set up our message this morning by just pointing out uh, where James has taken us. Remember we started off at the very beginning observing that James was taking us on a journey. And we noted the difference between a trip and a journey— is that the journey changes you. There are things about a journey that change you. When you take a trip to Walmart, you go down to Walmart, and somebody says, where are you going? I'm going to Walmart. I'll be right what? How would you finish that? I'll be right back. I'm just going to go pick up, and whatever it is you're going to pick up. I'm just going to go pick up milk, and, uh, and then you're, do you need anything, and then you're right back. A journey is very different. When you go on a journey, the journey is intended to change you. And James has been taking us on a journey. And along the way, James has pointed out a couple of majestic sites that I want to make sure we capture as we come to the very end of the journey. The, one of the big sites that James pointed out to us is that there are two creations that he talks about in the book. There is a creation that he mentions in chapter 1, verse 17. Let me show it to you. If you have your Bible, just turn over to, to 117, when James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And that title, Father of lights, is a reference to God as creator. God has created a creation. But something happened to that creation That never happens to God. Finish out the verse with me. The Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Creator has never wandered, but His creation has. Something has happened to that creation. And you know the story. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when because of the words of the serpent from uh, wisdom that comes from below, Adam was deceived and sinfully acted against the wisdom that God had given him and the words that had been given to him in the garden. And because of that willful transgression, because he stepped over the mark, because his desires were inflamed and dragged him away into sin, sin produced something. It produced death. And, and because creation wandered, the Lord sent something down from heaven. He sent a good gift. You see that in verse 18? He sent a good gift, and that gift in verse 18 brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's the new creation. So James says, before you go too far on the journey, I want you to know that this book that I'm writing to you is about two creations. There's the original creation that wandered, and then there are people who have been brought forth by the word of truth as a new creation, and they are supposed to do something to that old creation. So there are two creations, and you are part of the new creation. That's the first vista that James points out. Then James says, now there are two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms. And he talks about the kingdom of darkness that is ruled by a wisdom that comes from below. And then there is a new kingdom. And we saw that in verse 1 where James said, he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And when we looked at verse 1 of chapter 1, James is talking about two kingdoms. There are the kingdoms of the world that make up the one kingdom of darkness, and then there is a kingdom that God has given to his son, and you and I are members of that big kingdom. We are ambassadors of that kingdom that have been sent back to all the little kingdoms of the world. So every one of us has been assigned a place in the little kingdoms of the world to represent something That is true about the big kingdom. And in order to accomplish what we're supposed to be doing in all the little kingdoms of the world, we have got to operate by a wisdom. And that's the third thing that James says to us. There are two creations, there are two kingdoms, and there are two wisdoms. There is wisdom from above, and there is wisdom that comes from below. The wisdom from above are words that were given to you by the Creator, the Father of lights, who never gives a serpent or a stone. He always gives good gifts. And he has given a word of truth, and that word of truth is the perfect law of liberty, the law that frees. It's the perfect law, the law that perfects. It's the royal law. It's the will of the king, and it's located, James says, in the Scripture. And then there is a wisdom from beneath. And you and I, as members of the big kingdom of God, assigned to the hard spaces and dark places of the little kingdoms of the world, are called to live out that wisdom. And the way that James has been talking to us about that is this. We have to display a living faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. Now that's where James has been going. But have you ever got to the end of something and found a plot twist? You know what a plot twist is? A couple of years ago, actually, many years ago now, uh, my my kids, as part of our family tradition, uh, we we would we would sort of binge watch shows and and my kids got to pick the shows. So when my son was still living at home, he had this show that he was enthralled with and so we would just sit down on and when it was his turn to pick a show he he liked the show psych anybody ever seen psych anybody know psych that show it's an old show and uh, it's just about two crazy guys and it's humorous and so we all i don't know how many episodes i think there's i don't know how many seasons i think we've watched every season and virtually every episode um, And I could just go on about the different shows that that, that he got us into. But my daughter actually got me into one. And uh, she said one day, she said, Dad, I think you, you should watch this show. And it's a show about fairy tales. I'm like, are you kidding me? I didn't say that out loud, but I'm thinking that. Are you kidding me? Fairy tales. I read theology. I don't read fairy tales. But I agreed to watch the first episode of a show called Once Upon a Time. Anybody ever watch that show? I see some of you going, wow, he watched Once Upon a Time? Yeah, for a certain number of seasons, then we had to quit watching because it got politically correct and it just wasn't a good thing to do. But in those early seasons, here's what happens. I got hooked because it's all about the fairy tales that you learned growing up, except when you watch the fairy tale, it's like there's a plot twist to it. Like when I found out who Skilston really was, I was blown away. I, I thought Peter Pan was a good guy. I never, it was just completely plot twisted. Well, James is going to throw us a plot twist at the end in the last two verses. And I have to admit, as I came to this passage, I never saw it coming. James has been talking to us about displaying a living faith that's wholehearted, single focused, fully trusting in the hard spaces and dark places of the little kingdoms of the world. But by the time we get to the end, he's going to actually redirect where we're supposed to be displaying that faith, and I never saw it coming. That faith is supposed to be cultivated and strengthened by enduring trials. We saw that in chapter 1. It is shaped by a wholehearted embracing of the perfect law of liberty that we are supposed to be doers of and not just hearers. We saw that again in chapter 1. It is validated by resisting temptation, and it is displayed by a spirit-energized obedience to the Word so that it lives authentically. In other words, at the end of chapter 1, it is a religion that is acceptable to God and useful to others. And James has introduced us to five friends who have modeled all of this. But when we get to the end of the book, James tells us about a group of people who wandered. And so I want to talk to you this morning about believers behaving badly and what God intends to do about it. And so let's begin where James begins. And so as I look at this text, I want to answer uh, a question that came up in my mind. Who is James talking about and what in the world has happened to them? When we get to the end of the book, I'm expecting some glorious uh, sort of encouraging idea, and it is, but it it gets me there in a very different way than I intended to think about. By the time you get through verses 19 and 20, you begin to realize that something is on fire and it's about to engulf everything. Who is James talking about and what is happening? Well, look at verse 19, my brothers. So immediately, you know that he is talking to believers James is talking to believers that are in the churches to which he is writing. These are the people that have been sent out into those dark spaces and into those hard places all around the Roman Empire, and they are supposed to be living out their faith in a way that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. And the whole reason they are doing that is because they are like the farmer we met back in chapter 5, verse 7. They are in those hard places and in those dark spaces and they are sowing seeds and they are looking for something to grow up out of the seeds. And what they are sowing is seeds of righteousness and they are looking for a harvest of peace. You can see that at the end of chapter 3. And and James says, now you be like that farmer. So he's talking to believers, but he's talking to them about disobedient believers. So here's a letter written to obedient believers about disobedient believers. He says this, if anyone among you, and then he's going to tell us what's going on about that person who is among you. So he's writing to believers about believers and the particular believers that are in focus here are believers who have wandered from the truth the word wander is the word that we get our word planet from and think about what a planet does it sort of it wanders around the sky it wanders around in a particular path it has an orbit it doesn't stay stationary and here are believers who have been taken out of the old creation that has wandered because of sin, and now these new believers who are part of the new creation, who have been given the implanted word in their heart, who have been given a living faith that should be wholehearted and single-focused and fully trusted, something has happened to these believers. And like those planets that have been wandering back in James chapter 1, they have also been wandering, and where they have been wandering is away from the truth. They have willfully and intentionally and blatantly departed from the word of truth. They have refused to obey its expectations. In chapter 1, verse 21, they have refused to cleanse their life of moral filthiness and rampant wickedness. In the rest of chapter 1, they have refused to receive the word of God with a meek and submissive spirit. These are the professional hearers of the word that we met way back in chapter 1 who hear the word, but they are not active doers of the word or of what it uh, demands. They think they are religious, but because they don't bridle their mouth or they don't control their lusts, their religion is worthless. It's neither acceptable to God nor is it useful to others. And they have sinned so openly in chapter 4 that they are in the very real danger of facing God's severe judgment. And all of this has been happening inside the church. And that was sort of the plot twist for me. I thought James was directing this letter primarily to people who were going to live out their faith in the hard places and dark spaces of the world, and that's certainly true. But James is actually now pointing all of this to a very dark place and to a very hard space where this has actually been going on in the church. And so that brings me to the next question because this is shocking. This is actually stunning. I didn't expect James to go here. And so now I want to know this. What evidence James, do you have that this is actually true? What evidence do you what evidence is there that what you're sort of pointing me to is actually true? And so James says in verse 20 of chapter 5, whoever brings a sinner. So these brothers that are wandering are now called sinners. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. These sinners that James is talking about have been doing a lot of sinning. They have been piling up a mountain of sins. And the sins that they have been been sinning are the very sins that James talked about in chapter 1 when he says, "Don't, don't be deceived about something. Remember back in chapter 1, he says, don't be deceived. When your lusts are at work, they will drag you away. When your strong passions are at work, they will drag you away, and where they will drag you is into the practice of sin. And if you continue to practice sin, if that sin is left unchecked in your life or in the life of a body, it will produce something. Your lusts will drag you away into the practice of sin, and the practice of sin in your life, if left unchecked, will produce something. And what it will produce is death. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 5, this has been going on in the life of the believers that James is talking about. Some of them have been dragged away, just like James warned. They have been dragged away by their strong passions, and they have filled up their life with a multitude of sins. For example, in chapter 1, verse 21, they have filled up their life with moral filthiness and rampant wickedness. James talks about this in chapter 1. They have filled up their life with an unbridled tongue that has led to unbridled lusts and, and certainly has resulted in unbridled jealousy, selfish ambition, And disorder and every vile practice. Now, I thought as we were reading through James, I'm just being honest, I thought as we're reading through James that this was actually kind of what was going on in the world that we were set out to display our living faith in. But by the time you get to chapter 5, there's no possible way you can read chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, and not walk away realizing that this behavior that was in the world has found its way into the church. Here are people whose mouth has been destroyed, whose ambition has been destroyed, the beauty of the gospel, whose actions have been marked by disorder and jealousy and every vile practice. In chapter 2, they brought the sin of partiality into the church. They have been making empty professions of what they believe, this is what we believe. This is, we, are, we are faithful to this doctrine, or we believe these things. And James has been very direct with those people, and he has said, you believe, but so do the devils, so do the demons. So all of a sudden, you're starting to see that bitter quarrels and verbal assassination has been going on in chapter 4. Spiritual adultery marked by friendship with the world has produced an enmity with God in chapter 4, verse 4. Spiritual arrogance has come into the church. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go to this city, and we're going to buy and sell this product, and we're going to make this money. And James looks at all of that and says that's just arrogance, and that is sinful, prideful independence from God and his will. There has been extortion and oppression and persecution and the attacking of innocent people who are serving God And all of this has been going on in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. All of this has been going on in the church. It's stunning, isn't it? Man, I thought James was writing me an encouraging book. I thought James was writing me a general epistle full of general truth and practical help. No, he's actually writing a very specific book to very specific people about very specific issues in the church of God that is supposed to be displaying new creation norms to a world that desperately needs to see them. And instead of displaying the beauty and the power and the harmony and the righteousness and the shalom of the gospel, what has been going on in the church is actually the very same things that are going on in the world. And James says, this needs to change. This needs to change. All of this has been going on, and the evidence of this multitude of sinning is the fact that the head of the church has actually afflicted some of these people with a disease that is about to take their life. We just read about that disease, didn't we, in chapter 5, verse uh, uh, 15, when we talked about the prayer of faith, saving the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And we noted that not all illness that comes into our life is because of sin. But then we went on to note that sometimes illness comes into our life because of sin. And that's why he goes on to say, if anyone has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so this has been going on in the church. And here is the evidence of it. And if you go back and read James with these lenses, you begin to say, oh, my word, he's right. And you can see all of the places in the five chapters where James is all of a sudden pulling forth the evidence for what has been going on in the church. Now, that leads me to my third question, and that's this. How in the world did this happen? How could this happen? You ever had that experience as you're Observing something, and it's so unexpected, it's so unanticipated. It's like, I, I just can't even believe what I'm hearing, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I need evidence of this. And then somebody gives you the evidence, and you're like, Oh my word, that's ex- I, I just can't. How did this happen? How did we get here? This is what James wants you to feel as you get to the end of the book. How in the world did this happen? How could it possibly be that this is going on in the church of God? And by the way, just to remind us, these are not the chairs or the building. When we talk about the church, we're talking about the people. How could these things be going on in the life of people? How did something this bad find its way into the heart of God's people and into the corporate life of the church? And James says, well, I'm going to tell you how it got there. One of the ways it got there was because of a tongue that was set on fire from hell. Remember chapter 3? He talks about the tongue, and he talks about the tongue being set on fire by hell. Well, that tongue set on fire by hell has been setting a lot of things on fire in this book. By the time you get to chapter 4, that mouth... That tongue on fire from below has been verbally assassinating other people in the church. Listen to what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. If you ask and do not receive because you asked wrongly to spend it on your passions. These are all sins of the tongue that have been at work. These are not unbelievers coming and doing the character assassination. These are other believers in the church who want something so badly and God isn't giving it to them that they are going to do whatever they have to do to get it. And they're going to open up this, and they're going to start assassinating people's character, and they're going to assassinate people's ministries, and they're going to do all these things inside the church because they want something. And God hasn't chosen to give it to them when they answer, when they ask him. And the reason he hasn't answered their prayer is not because he hasn't heard it. He hasn't answered it because they're asking it for the wrong reason. They want to do something with the thing they want. And it's being all driven by passions that have never been bridled. And that's the second thing. How did this happen? It happened because somebody used their tongue to start fires in the church of God. And the reason that tongue was used in that way because of an unbridled passion for something that God didn't want them to have or that God told them was not part of his will for their life. And that's exactly what we saw back in chapter 1. They became deceived in their own hearts. James has warned us three times in this letter about the danger of deception. Can I just say it to you this way? Whenever I end up in a sin, whenever I end up in a sin, it's generally not because I didn't know it was wrong. Can we just be honest about that? When I end up looking at something that God said no to, and I'm going, I don't want to take that no, and I end up doing the thing God told me not to do, or I end up transgressing the wisdom of God or the law of God, it's generally not because I didn't know it was wrong. Like, let's say that, that, that I end up in, in a mess where I have been, you know, just completely outside of the bounds of, of God's truthfulness or, or God's morality, and, and I end up over here, and then I try to say, well, I didn't know that lying was wrong. Or I didn't know that that it was wrong to cheat on my wife. Or I I didn't know that it was wrong to steal. None of us are going to buy that. Because we all know at this stage in our life... That if we end up here, we ended up here where we ended up. Not because of ignorance. I did not end up here because I didn't know. It's not like I can go to God and say, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, I didn't know you didn't want me to do this. I wish I had known. Let me get out of here and I won't do it again because now that I know, I won't do it. That's not, that, I mean, for most of us, that's not why we end up in sin. We end up in sin because we've deceived ourselves. That the thing we know really doesn't matter. We somehow have become convinced that even though God gave us a no, it's okay for us to get here. We somehow convinced ourselves that either God doesn't care or God doesn't know or it's not going to really matter or it's really not that bad. Or, you know, actually, I've got to do this if I'm going to protect something over here that really matters. This really matters and I'm afraid this is going to be compromised. So I better go over here and cross the line and do something, you know, that maybe God doesn't want me to do, but I'm going to do it anyway because I've got to go over there and protect that. I mean, we have all kinds of ways in which we deceive ourselves. And three times in this letter, James says, do not be deceived. So when you and I end up over there, at the end of the day, we got there generally. Because we were deceived. So let me ask you a question. Who deceived us? And what did he use to deceive us? And you know the answer, don't you? <laughs> you and I are in a spiritual warfare the reason that you end the week exhausted, have you just ended the week exhausted and and it's the kind of exhaustion that you can go and sleep all day on Saturday and you're just going to wake up tired? It's a soul tiredness. The reason that you are tired in your soul is because you have been in a battle all week long. I mean, can you imagine, you know, just, just think in your mind, go back into... Uh, the era of, you know, of mortal battle where, where two sides would come together and all day long they would be on a battlefield and they would be just exerting incredible amounts of energy to defeat the enemy. You've been doing that for the last seven days, all day long. And when you come to the end of the week, it's not just your body that's tired. Sometimes it's your soul. It's exhausted because it has been assailed by the enemy. Temptations, tribulations, trials, pressures, betrayals. I mean, just it just mounts up. And at the end of the week, you, 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 you're just done in. You get home and you, ju- you just sit there and, and you just want to veg because there's and, – and, 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 and you go to bed and you get up the next morning and your body may be refreshed, but your soul is still tired. And part of what's been going on is there's been an enemy who's been doing everything he can to destroy you, to discourage you, to distance you, and to drag you away. And the weapon that he has to do all of this with is your flesh, that unredeemed part of you that desires all the things that God told you are no longer a part of your life. And this is exactly what has been going on. These people have been enticed by their lusts. They've been frustrated by their unanswered prayers. And at the end of the day, they decided, you know what? I'm going to get that thing. And if I can't get it from the wisdom God gave me, then I'm going to go to the wisdom of the world. There is a counsel that ungodly people have about life. There is a way of living that sinners present to you. There there are values and priorities that scorners present. We read about this in Psalm 1, verse 1. And if God's wisdom isn't going to work for me so that I can get these things, then I'll just go over there, and in this particular moment, I will embrace the wisdom of the world. And and that, my friend, is the whole problem. This is what James warned about way back at the beginning. Here's what he said. If you lack wisdom, go to God and ask. But you need to come with faith. And the kind of faith you need to have is a faith that doesn't waver. It doesn't wander like in Elijah's day when the nation, we just saw Elijah praying on Mount Carmel and the nation was trying to decide, do I go and hang out with Yahweh to get rain or do I go over and hang out with Baal to get rain? James says, if you come to the wisdom of God like that and you waver, you're double-minded. And don't expect that God will give you anything. So he lays this out really profoundly. And so here we are, and we're looking at a group of people who are behaving badly in God's church because they have been deceived, because they have unbridled lusts, and because they are double-minded. And that brings me to the fourth question that is this. So what is needed and what will be required of those God sends to rescue those who have wandered? I mean, here's the picture. I mean, you're you're on a hike, and uh, the guide says to you, now, you need to be really careful. Do not wander away. Do not go off the trail. There are placards everywhere. There are signs everywhere. Stay on the trail. That's what James has been saying to you. Stay on the trail. Stay with the wisdom. But somebody has crawled over the fence Somebody has made his way around all the placards. Somebody has wandered way out into terrain that is unmarked, and they've become lost, and they are in real danger of being destroyed. This is what he meant by unbridled lusts dragging you away. Where do they drag you? They drag you into the practice of sin, and in that wilderness, unless you are rescued, there is only one outcome, and it is death right? This is exactly what the New Testament teaches us elsewhere. The wages of sin is what? Death. And so here we have a believer who has embraced the gospel, but he's turned away from the wisdom of the gospel, and he's gone back into the wilderness, and he's embraced all of that bad wisdom, and it's producing unbelievable disaster and destruction in his life. And if that goes unchecked, there is going to be a horrible outcome and what is needed is someone to go find him somebody to go find him look at verse 19 of chapter 5 my brothers if anyone anyone among, among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back you know what's needed God is gonna tap somebody on the shoulder and say, I have an assignment for you. I'm gonna send you into a hard place. I'm gonna send you into a dark space and you're gonna need to be like Abraham. You're gonna need to render unquestioning obedience. When you get into that hard space and into that dark place, you're gonna need to display the kind of loyalty to truth and the kind of loyalty to God that Rahab did. When you get in that hard place and dark space, you're going to need to be very gracious, and you're going to need to forbear all of the anger and all of what's going to come at you when you're in that space, just like the prophets had to do. You might be in that hard space, and what's, going to, what, what's, what's actually going to happen to you there is unanswered suffering, unexplained suffering, and you're going to need to be okay like Job was okay. And you're like, okay, well, where am I going? And God says, well, you're going to go right over here and you're going to go and you're going to pursue your brother in Christ who wandered off. Now, I didn't expect that. And James is not writing this to the elders of the church. He's writing this to the church. This is every one of our responsibilities. When we see a brother that's wandered off, God taps us on the shoulder and says, now, look, you need to go after that guy. You need to go after your sister. They are about to be destroyed. You know what we typically do? Well, you know, that's really not my business. You know, I got my own problems. I mean, how can I go over there and talk to them about this sin when I'm struggling over here with this sin? And God doesn't go that direction with us. He says to James, listen, you... You need to know, and and James says it to his people, that if anyone wanders and someone brings him back, the word bring back is the word for repent. It's the idea of return. All throughout the Old Testament, this word is used to describe God's people turning back. Somebody needs to go and help the brother that is wandering. Let me give you an illustration that I think might help. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I, I think it was a Saturday morning. We decided to go on one of our bike rides. And so uh, Beth has this wonderful bike that she can fly on. So when I'm riding along my bike, uh, I'm just, I'm like dying. And I'm trying to go like, I don't know, 12, 13 miles an hour. And I look behind me to see where Beth is. And she's like, she's just flying by me. She's, you know, just riding along. She has a pedal assist bike with a little electric motor that just makes all the difference in the world. I don't have that on my bike. So we were riding along, and uh, we had gone on a longer ride, and we were, I think, maybe four miles, three or four miles from where our car was parked, and she was flying past me, and all of a sudden, I started hearing this thud, 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 and I looked down, and my tire was flat. So I got and I'm I'm in these clippy cloppy shoes and I'm I'm like, what do I do now? And and this dude comes flying by. And then he stops and he kind of puts his foot down and he looks back like this and he goes, Are you okay? What's the real answer? No. I stink right now. This stinks. But you know what I said? I'm fine. We're good. He goes, you got a flat tire. I know. I'm good. You need any help? No. And so he takes off, and I start clomping along, clomp, 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 because these are not like like regular shoes. They got these pedals on or these clips on the bottom, and, and you know, they, they literally I call them clomper shoes. So you're clomping along on the trail, pushing your bike like this, and I'm realizing this is going to be a really long hike. Beth is already way up there. She's, I don't know where she is. I'm like, you know, I'm thinking, you know, Lord, this woman that you gave me should be here. And she's up there. I didn't know she was actually helping me because when this guy blew up to where she was, she was sort of turned around and, and he goes, are you waiting for somebody? And she goes, yeah, my husband's back there. He has a flat tire. So he turns around and comes back and gets off his bike and says to me, you are in trouble. I'm like, I am in trouble. He said, I thought your car was just up here, but it wasn't. Your car's like three miles away. You're going to clomp all the way up there in your shoes? I'm like, he goes, do you know how to change this tire? No. Do you have any tools to change your tire with? No. He goes, all right, you're going to get, you're, we're going to, we're, I'm going to teach you how to do this. And so right there on the trail, he changed my bike tire. He had a spare tube. He had all the little special tools that you have to have. I didn't have zip. He had all of them in this little pack on his bike. He was prepared. And at the end, he said, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pass this on because there's going to come a day when you're riding down and there's going to be another Sam Horn stuck on the trail, and you're going to remember that I came and helped you, and you need to stop and help that person. I thought to myself, this is a beautiful illustration of what James has in mind. All of us, there's not a one of us in this room, aren't going to find ourselves at some point on the trail where we've wandered off. And God is going to send another brother back. And that brother's going to look at us, or that sister's going to look at us, and they're going to say, Are you okay? Are you okay? And you know what our temptation is? I'm good. Nothing to see here. Fine. Lord is good all the time. Amen. Meanwhile, you're clomping along and your tires are done, and, and that guy comes back and says, Can I just tell you something? You're not okay. You're not good. You need help. That's what James is talking about. It says, We close. What is the assurance that when you turn back and you help somebody on the trail whose life is messed up, they, have, they, they are the ones whose life has been destroyed by sin. They have been dragged away. They are setting fires everywhere. They are hazards on the trail. What is the assurance that when you turn back to help them, your help will actually be productive? And that's what James says. Let him know something. When you turn back to help a brother on the trail, James says, I want you to know something with certainty. When you do this, you will bring back, and whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Two things James wants you to know. When you turn back to help your brother, and the Spirit of God grants your brother repentance because of the ministry of the Word that you've had in his life, When that happens, you will have delivered his life from sin. Why? Because you have aborted the process of sinning in his life. Sin, when it is complete, brings forth death, and God used you to intervene in that process, and that brother repented, and now instead of death, there's life. Yeah, but what if he's committed a ton of sins? Well, look at the last... Verse here, he will cover a multitude of sins. The word cover there is not ignore. It's not like, oh, well, I'm just going to ignore them like they didn't happen. This is the Old Testament word that David used in Psalm 32 when he said this, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions, and you covered, you forgave the iniquity of my sins. In other words, David is saying, when I uncovered my sins, you covered them. You forgave them. And so when you and I go to a brother whose life has been overtaken by sin, God says to us, are you willing to go to that hard place in that dark space? God says, when you go and you do the ministry that is there, you need to know two things. You will deliver that brother from sin or from death, and you will, the, the sins, the multitude of sins that he has committed will be covered. So, what will it take? What will it take? Well, what did it take Jesus to do that for you? Peter says that Jesus came into a dark place and into a hard space. So that wandering sheep, that's me and you, could be returned to the shepherd. What did it take, Jesus? It took Jesus' immense suffering. It cost him immense suffering. It cost him rejection. And it even cost him his death. So if to turn a wandering brother back from sin, God said to you, I'm going to send you to the hardest place you've ever lived in. I'm going to put you in the hardest circumstance you've ever experienced. But at the end of that, there is a wandering sheep that's going to come back. Would you be willing to take that assignment? What if God literally sat down to you and said, now in that dark space and in that hard place that you're going to be for an extended period of time, there's going to be unbearable suffering that's going to come into your life as a part of that mission. When you go to that dark place in that dark space, the the, the pain, the soul pain, the weariness, the suffering is going to be very Job-like. But at the end of that experience, there is going to be somebody that is going to come back to me. Would you still be willing to do that? What if God literally said to you in that heart space, And in that dark place, and in that suffering that you're going to experience, it's it's actually going to introduce earthly death into your life. But I promise you, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And at the end of all of that suffering, and at the end of your physical death, there will be people who will come to me. Missionaries do this all the time, don't they? How many people have given up their life for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and somebody, even their persecutors like Paul, came to Christ? What if God actually tapped you on the shoulder and said, Are you willing to do that? Would you? Would you? I mean, that's where James is going. I told you there was a plot twist. This is the plot twist. The plot twist is this. If we are going to live James out in our life, it's not just about controlling our mouth. It's not just about, oh, yeah, I need to read my Bible more. It's not just, oh, yeah, yeah, I need, I need to be a, a healthy, operative part of the body of Christ. All of those things are true. It is about this. My living faith needs to be so wholehearted, so single-focused, and so fully trusting that I am willing to go into the very hardest place and in the very darkest place even at the cost of my own life, and I'm willing to do that if God will go with me because there are people that he wants to bring back. Folks, there's only one thing that will strengthen you. It's the very thing that James talked about when he talked to the farmer up in verse 7. It's, in, it's actually in verse 8. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There's only one thing that will put iron in your soul to be willing to go do that and it is this. The Lord is coming and when he comes there will be a harvest of righteousness. All that seed you're sowing, all that soil that is so rocky and so hard, all of the wounding that has come to you from the very people you're trying to rescue, all of the anger, all of the all of the things you've suffered like Job and like the prophets, all of it will produce a rich harvest of righteousness. Mercy triumphs over judgment when those who have received mercy go into those dark places and cause sinning brothers and sinning souls to return to the shepherd. That's James. Would you listen to James today? Would you let James just speak whatever truth he needs to speak into your soul this morning? Let's bow our heads uh, as we end our time this morning. And I'm going to give you just 30 seconds to say to the Lord, Lord, I don't know what you need to do in my life to develop a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. I don't know what that's going to take, but whatever it is, would you please do it? Whatever it is, you know exactly what ingredient to bring into my life to bring about a wholeheartedness in me. Lord, whatever that is, you know exactly what needs to happen to strip me from worldly wisdom that has crept into my life. You know exactly what you need to do in my life to grow in me iron. That will establish my soul in the hard place where you put me. And then, Lord, would you send me forth to sow seeds of righteousness, looking for a harvest of peace in the lives of other people? Maybe you're here this morning and you've been someone who has been one of those brothers or sisters who has been sinning in the church. Thankfully, Our elders are not aware of anything like that in our church, but there are churches where that is going on. There are ministries where that happens, and maybe that's some of you. And you would come to the Lord this morning and say, I just need to ask you to forgive me. There is mercy. It always triumphs over judgment. And maybe there's some of you this morning, and God is saying, listen, there is a hard place coming up in the trail just around the corner I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tap you, and I'm going to say, now you need to stay right here on the trail. This hard place, this dark space, there are people that need to come to me, and you are uniquely equipped and positioned to bring them. So I'm going to tap you, and you're going to stay in that hard place and dark place and hard space. And you would say to the Lord, Lord, I'm willing. If that's what you want for me, I'm willing. Or maybe you'd say, Lord, I don't know that I'm willing, but I'm willing for you to make me willing. Father, we thank you for James. We pray that what he has said to us would continue to bear rich fruit in our lives. We are grateful that throughout the history of your church, there have been ordinary, everyday people who have been willing to go into some of the hardest places and some of the darkest spaces, even giving their lives so that we could sit here this morning many de- many many generations later knowing the truth embracing the gospel because of their sacrifice and lord when it is our turn would you would you strengthen us would you remind us of this wonderful book that puts iron in us so that we would display our wholehearted single focused fully trusting faith because of jesus whom we love and serve and in whose name we pray. Amen.